welcome back to the final four and why don't we go ahead and dig in. Jesus was uh, asked by the disciples a really important question. The question was, when we address God, the creator, what should we say? And remember, the response of Jesus was the famous, what we call the Lord's Prayer. What you say, according to Jesus, is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First thing Jesus wanted us to know is acknowledge the fact that the creator is your father in heaven. You have a father in heaven, but he's not like you. He's holy, our heavenly father. Hallowed be thy name. May you be recognized hallowed, holy, separate from God's God. We're not. But then he said, but thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, may the will of God, may the kingdom of God come. And Jesus will return and establish that kingdom. He's going to rule this world. But in, John, in Luke 17, when they asked Jesus, well, when is the kingdom of heaven going to come? Jesus was the one who said, in a sense, the kingdom of heaven is in the presence in your midst. It's now because the one who's going to rule the kingdom when it comes can actually rule your life right now. And this is what we call a kingdom ethic. Someone who follows Jesus Christ actually is committed to that prayer to acknowledge that God is God, I am not. He, he, he's holy. But his kingdom, his will be done on earth now in my life, right now, for he's the one that rules my heart. And so this kingdom ethic is something that it defines who I am as a follower of Christ. It drives what I do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Everybody you know has an ethic. Every person you know has something that defines them, something that drives them, basically explanation of their life. Last week we talked about all the, the seven different isms. There's materialism. Those are the folks who are driven by, well, whoever gets the most toys wins, and that's who they are. You got individualism. It's all about me first, my first. Then there's hedonism. Well, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. That defines me. That's who I am. Then pragmatism. Well, if it works, I'm going after it. Then there's humanism. I establish my own truth. What's right, what's wrong, what's moral? I will determine on that by my own sensitivities. Then there's fatalism, remember? Those are the uh, victims. Nothing's gonna change, and so everybody's out for their own deal. But remember, there's a seventh ism, a seventh ethic, theism, which I call basically the kingdom ethic. We looked at the first four of the Beatitudes, which is really Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthews 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is going to lay out how a follower of Christ is going to live out their lives, but you got to think right before you do right. And so he begins, he introduces the Sermon on the Mount with these eight Beatitudes because he says this is the attitude behind a follower of Christ. This is how we think. This is, defines how we are. And so last week, we went through the first four. Remember, the number one began with God. You're God. I'm not, and so I don't expect to be treated like one. Number two, who am I? Well, I'm a sinner. And I, I mourn over my sinfulness. 
and evil that can come out of my life. But I'm so grateful for my forgiveness. Number three, I'm here to not be served, but to serve. It's not about me. And number four, I'm true to who I really am. Righteousness, I'm in a right relationship, a relationship God wanted with me, created in his own image. I'm a child of the Heavenly Father, just trying to bring a delight to my God in heaven. This is my ethic, my kingdom ethic. This defines me. This drives me. But now let's pick up with the final four. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're back in chapter five. And notice number five, verse seven. Blessed, Jesus says, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So blessed are those who are merciful to others, because in some way they're going to receive mercy back. Now, there's a ricochet principle in, in our world, observed in our world. Things like what goes around comes around. You get out what you put in. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You reap what you so, and that was biblical. So some people think that's what's happening here. That Jesus is basically saying, if you're merciful to others, well, then they're going to turn right around and be merciful to you. Well, that's okay, but it's not true. I mean, how merciful was Jesus? And what did he get back for his merciful life? They crucified him. And so this isn't one of those ricochet principles that you be merciful to others and it's going to come back around at you. There's something else going on here. But what does it mean to be merciful? You sure don't see a lot of it around, especially on the roads. If you make a mistake, there's like a subcutaneous level of anger that everybody has ready to spit it out on you if you make a mistake on the road but you want to know why you don't see a lot of mercy around your life? It's because most people live out a principle called the Freudian principle. The Freudian principle basically states seek pleasure and avoid pain. And if everybody's all about seeking pleasure, their own pleasure, well, they don't, aren't really interested in your pain. And if they're not interested in your pain, that kills mercy. That murders mercy. Because mercy, the Hebrew word for mercy is the word hesed. And it's a hard word to do, to translate into English because it describes an experience of crawling into somebody else's body, seeing through their eyes, hearing with their ears, feeling with their feelings, thinking with their own thoughts, and feeling the pain of others. Because when you can feel the pain of others, that pain moves you to a thing called compassion. Compassion. The most unmerciful, uncompassionate people I know that have the depth of a thimble is the fact that they've never suffered. And then when you do feel pain, let's go get therapy. No one's supposed to feel pain to go to suffer is a bad thing. No, when we go through pain, we're actually embracing a pool that I hope you hold on to because it gives you a capacity to feel the suffering and the pain of another person. And if you can't, you cannot be merciful. Because it is that pain that moves you to compassion. And all compassion is, is anything I can do to lift off some of your suffering. See, that's why the Freudian principle murders it. Because if I'm all about my pleasure, and I'm not really interested in your pain, then I'll never be merciful, and I'll never have anything to move me to compassion. The 
try to lift off some of the suffering that somebody else is going through. It is caring about the well-being of another and being moved to compassion. That is what merciful is. So it's not some ethereal thing. Every time you are reaching out to try to lift the suffering of someone else, you are being merciful. And if you do that, you will receive mercy, but not from others necessarily. Say, well, then from where do I receive it? Do you remember last week? I, I, I have this fantasy, you remember things I said. Just play with along. But remember in Isaiah 57, verse 15, Remember when it says, God describes himself, I am high, I'm exalted, I dwell in the heavens, but you know what turns my head to earth and specifically to you? It's every time I see you humble, every time I see a contrite heart. Remember he finishes Isaiah, the, the book, chapter 66, verse two, he says, I am the creator of everything, but what turns my head is when I see someone humble and when someone is basically manifesting mercy by being moved to show compassion to someone else, God draws near. Because it's the purest expression of humility. And so where do you receive the mercy? Maybe not from others, but you sure have God's attention. And we live in a land of mercy. And to live under God's blessing, that's not a bad thing. Because remember, it's always the stronger who initiates the mercy. Because it's the stronger who has the stronger desire to honor their heavenly father, not to somehow preserve their pleasure or protect their ego. And so it is the deeper desire to honor God. Well, that comes from the next beatitude. Notice verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God for themselves. Blessed are the pure in heart. Do you know what a hypocrite is? You know, I've never met anybody who says, you know, when I grow up, I like to be a hypocrite. <laughs> the word hypocrite speaks of an actor, somebody who pretends, and they're not living out anything that's real about who they are. I, I, uh, I, I saw Star Trek, good movie. I like seeing movies, and I love having people judge me for it. But the fact is, I remember years ago, I went to see uh, the movie 300. Remember the movie 300? I was interested because Herodotus, who is the, the Greek historian, it's about the Spartan Wars. And this was Hollywood's attempt to display the Spartan Wars when Persia came with huge hordes and 300 Spartans held them off and then they were all slaughtered. It was just great. My problem is I bought the movie. When you buy it, you get special features. Oh, those can ruin the movie. Because these whores of Spartans fighting the 300 men, tough. Rah! Well, they showed how they made the movie. And you've got about 25 guys with this green backing. They're dressed in these funny little skirts. And they're just kind of sitting there drinking coffee. And they said, okay, everybody together. All right. And they run 20 feet in front of this green screen going, ar, 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 ar. And all of a sudden, they multiply it through computer. And I kind of went, that really sucks. <laughs> they look silly pretending to be Spartans. And I thought of this word, hypocriti. Pretending to be something you're not. Well, people say, well, then just follow your heart. You got to just follow your heart. If you follow your heart, then you won't be a hypocrite. Ooh. You know, Matthew 15, Jesus warns us a lot of bad things come out of the heart. 
As a matter of fact, Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can, under, who can understand it? The heart of a human being is an interesting thing biblically. Uh, the Hebrew word is lev. The Greek word is cardia. And it speaks of the center of your soul. All things you think, you do, your desires, all begin out of your heart, according to the Hebrew concept of heart. It was the center of your thoughts, your memories, your will, your desires, your hopes, your fears. It all comes out of the heart. Well, then what is a pure heart? The word pure is katharos, like catharsis. It means to purge, to cleanse something of something. In other words, unmixed. For example, an army was pure when it was purged of cowards. Wine was pure when it was unmixed with water. Metal was pure when no alloys would be found in it. Speaking of an unmixed heart, an unmixed soul, unmixed thoughts, unmixed desires, unmixed will and emotions. In other words, who are you? You know, Paul, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he describes all that God has done to bring us back into a relationship with our Creator. And in chapter 12, he starts begging. He says this in verse 1, Therefore I am begging you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that he's done, present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. I will present my body a, a holy sacrifice. I'm glad it says living holy sacrifice. But what's interesting here is it uses the aorist tense. What Paul is literally saying is, once and for all, make up your mind. Who are you? Your body, your soma, who are you? Are you a child of the heavenly father following his son, living out a kingdom ethic on earth as it is in heaven now? Are you this child of someone else? A child of the world, a child of darkness? Would you make up your mind once and for all? Who are you, you hypocrite? You say, all right, I'm going to present my body. Here it is, God. What do you want to do with it? Next verse. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove. Prove what? Prove that the will of God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that the will of God is that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You do know most people in this world are afraid of the will of God. Most of you are afraid of the will of God. Face it. Remember when you graduated from high school? You knew the will of God. You wanted to break your legs and make you play the flute, right? Now, you're a girl. You're going to put a butt on your head, put you in Africa, and you're never going to have babies. I mean, really, people are afraid of the will of God. Talk about crushing dreams. Let's just hold the will of God. It will destroy you. And God's saying, I need some good PR down here. How about some of you who, who are my children, who follow my son? People need to know that thy kingdom, thy will be done, that as I submit my life, my body, to the will of God, it is something good, something beautiful, something perfect, not something to be afraid of. And so he says, pure in heart, stop being a hypocrite. Stop being afraid of the will of God. 
Stop being afraid of who you are. Make up your mind once and for all. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, living out the kingdom ethic, and the will of God is something you embrace so people can see with your life, your body is something good and beautiful and not something to be feared, but they are drawn to it. And because of that, we are absorbed with the next beatitude. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, recognized as sons of God. Recognize doing a godlike work because they're peacemakers. This isn't about peace loving. Everybody's peace loving. This is being a peacemaker. You know, philosophers muse about the essence of life. I mean, what makes life life? It's just like the animals. Hey, they have life. But do they have the same life as we have? The Greeks had actually two words for, for life. They had the word bios, like biology. That's what animals have. You eat, you drink, you function, you sleep, you do your deal. And in that sense, we share that with animals. But every time Jesus wanted to talk about life, the essence of what makes life, life, eternal life, he always, always uses the word zoe, like zoology. In John 17, he prays, Lord, I've come to give them eternal life, zoe. And then he defines it. He says, and this is the eternal zoe. This is the essence of life he says, to know you and the one whom you sent. The essence of life is relationship. And it begins with a relationship with our creator through his son, Jesus Christ, and thus relationship with anyone else. You see, Satan, the power of darkness, he's all about death and deathness. The word death is thanatos in the scripture. It's, we even have in the English a study of dead things called thanatology. And the word thanatos means separation, isolation from, guess what? Relationships. People talk about what is darkness? What is hell going to be like? Isolation from relationships, from God and from everyone else. And so if you are involved in continuing to be isolated from God, isolated from each other, and you let that happen, then you are embracing deathness in your life. But a peacemaker is doing just the opposite they're bringing these relationships together because it's life. Even Jesus said, you know, all men are going to know you're my disciples by the way you treat each other. But he does something that I, I, you know, I would have counseled him against. But Jesus doesn't seek my counsel ever. But in John 17, remember that part when Jesus prays, Father, I pray they would be one even as you and I are one so that the world will know that I came from the Father. See, the way we treat each other, people know whether or not we're phonies. But then Jesus kicks it higher. He says, Lord, the way we treat each other, the world's going to know whether or not I'm a phony. And that's why Jesus calls us to peacemaking, to preserve that unity, that oneness, that unity in such diversity, it shows that Jesus is real. He's not a phony. Well, how, how, how do you do this thing, this peacemaking well, just like God does. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul again gives us a hint in, in chapter 5. Paul, Paul says this. He says, verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself, made peace for us to himself through Christ, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is an IPO thing. See, what do you mean IPO? I, 
Stronger always initiates because the stronger is more concerned with the honor of the Father than anything else. And so it is God who initiated. Here's God, here's us. There's a separation. It's called sin. Whose fault is this? Take a wild guess. It's us. We walked away from God. We wanted to be treated as gods. We want to be gods. So what happened? One of us sometime in history says, hey, God, we need to be at peace. You got any ideas? You got a son up there? It wasn't our idea. God initiated. So he initiated it, and then he provided for the peace. I-P, provided for the peace. That is what needs to be done for there to be peace. And that's why he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. What had to be done for there to be peace is his holiness, his justice had to pour upon the, 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 the debt of sin for the wages of sin is death. And his son had to die in our place so he could be freed up in justice, holiness, true to himself and provide forgiveness for us. It was nearly 40 years ago. Holly and I have been married 46 years now and nearly 40 years ago, we had a boomer of a fight. Now that's not really new because Holly's British and I'm French and if you know your history. <laughs> but I remember this one time, we, it was getting towards midnight and we were arguing and fighting and arguing on something and see, the, 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 the later it gets, Holly's IQ goes up and mine tanks. And I remember right in the middle of this argument, I'm beginning to realize she's being more reasonable than me, which really ticks off a Frenchman. So at that point, I did only what I could do. I walked out on her. I said, I don't need this. I'm out of here. I walked out that front door, Boulder Creek, Northern California. I'm a half mile down the road when I realized, oh God, next time I leave that woman, I'm putting my shoes on. Because I'm sitting there in my stocking feet and a full moon, I'm going. And, and, and you know, when you know scripture, you give vocabulary to the Holy Spirit. See, when you don't know the scripture, all he can do is make you feel guilty or badly. For me, he speaks to me with a British accent. I'll never forget that night. I hate 1 Peter 3, 7. I hate, I hate 1 Peter 3, 7. Because that's where God says, husbands, live with your wives according to understanding. Now, he doesn't say, husbands, understand your wife. Because God never commands us to do anything impossible. <laughs> but he says, live with your wives according to understanding, realizing they're a weaker vessel Therefore, honor them as a joint heir of the grace of God. And here's the part I don't like. Lest your prayers be hindered. He's basically saying, God, Daryl, I really don't want to draw near to you, talk to you until you've made peace with your wife. Means I, I've got to initiate this. P, I'm going to have to provide for this. So I remember I walked back and knocked on the door and Holly, what can I, what can I do to make this right? And there was something said about jumping off a cliff. <laughs> she was still pretty upset. So I sat on the porch for about 10 minutes and then tried it again. And yes, we worked it out. We've been married 46 years. We've worked it out many times. The point is, sometimes to make peace, you initiate, you provide, what can I do to make this right? 
without compromise, we can't jump off a cliff, but if there's something I can possibly do to make peace between us, well, it's I-P-O-O, and it's offered. And all you can do is offer the peace. Is God at peace with everybody? Oh, no. But he's offered peace to everyone. That's why Romans 12, verse 8 says, Be at peace with all men as much as lies within you. All you can do is initiate, IP, provide for the peace. What can I do to make this right? Stronger always initiates and provides. And then, then let's, I will do it. And we will, I will offer you this peace. If they accept the peace, you're a peacemaker and you've been successful for the sake of Christ. If they will not receive the peace, you have done all that you can. Well, then this is going to have a happy ending, isn't it? Eh. Last beatitude, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness. Peter later warns us, make sure when you're persecuted, it's not because you're a jerk, but for righteousness. It is because you are living out that right relationship as a father to a son, a father to a daughter, as you're living out that relationship to delight your heavenly father without compromise, but you're going to get persecuted for it. Paul says, those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Why? What, what's, what is it about love and caring and serving and being a nice guy that ticks people off? You ever wondered, why are Christians persecuted? We're the good guys. Well, you can love all you want, but there's a collision course you can do nothing about. Let's go back to our first century Christian fathers and mothers. They wanted to work. You had to join a union. You join a union, every union had a pagan god that it served. So if you want to get a job, you got to join a union and you better worship our god Bacchus, the god of wine. Else you're not going to in our union and you're not going to work. Persecution. Socially. They would be invited to dinner to friend's house. And on the little invitation would say, come and dine with us and celebrate the, the goddess, uh, 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 God Zeus or the goddess Aphrodite. So what do you do? Do you go and have social event honoring a pagan god? So there's persecution. You live in a little village community. Everybody worships the god that brings the rain and the pagan gods that bring the crops. But you, 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 you can't. You worship God, the true God. So what happens when one season it doesn't rain and the crops all die? And who's to f- the fault? You Christians are. And you're persecuted. Or politically. Aren't you a patriot? Don't you want to protect the unity of Rome? Come on. All you can worship anybody you want. But once a year, pitch a little bit of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Caesarea noose. Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. Do it for the sake of politics. But you can't say Caesar is Lord. You're one of those Christerianus, Christ worshipers. By the way, where we get our name Christians. Because you only say that Christ is Lord. Persecution. Slander. Yeah, we've heard about you Christians. You, you gather together, sometimes in the catacombs, and it's been leaked out that you, you eat flesh and you drink blood. 
that if you eat flesh and drink blood, you probably do it by killing little children. And that was a slander that was out among Christians. And that's why many of them were murdered and executed because it was thought to be, they would basically be cannibals. Slander, persecution. You can love all you want. But the point is, if it's for righteousness sake, there's something else going on here. Well, what else is going on here? The most disbelieved verse in the Bible by Christians. Most disbelieved verse in the Bible. Ephesians 6, 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against people, each other, but against harassing forces of darkness. Is it possible for a spirit being like Satan or demonic beings, is it possible for them to actually implant thoughts and desires of evil in human beings so that they will persecute people for righteousness sake? Remember last week? Again, I'm still pretending you would. Remember John 13, verse 2? And Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. That's why Paul says, you're going to be persecuted. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he's sitting in prison. He's chained up to a soldier. He knows the soldier's got a belt and a breastplate, and he's got his feet shod, and he's got a shield and a helmet and a sword, and Paul goes, that's it. Ephesians 6.10, he says, now stand firm and prepare for this persecution. He says, I'm going to tell you how. He says, be aware of the schemes of the devil is the phrase he uses. The Greek word is methodias. Yeah, methods. What methods? All relationships are based on two pillars, trust and respect. If I can't trust you're going to do what you promise, it's no relationship. And if I can't believe who you claim to be to reveal yourself as, there's no respect. No respect, no trust, there's no relationship. And what is it that Satan wants to do? Deathness, isolate you from God and thus from each other. And thus, how does he go after you? First, by trying to get rid of your, your respect for God by growing and throwing deception and lies about who God is. And when you start doubting, is there a God? Does God love me? And, and you're getting beat up and, and persecuted for your faith and what you believe about who God is. He says, hey, remember the belt, the belt of truth. Remember the truth. The truth is Christ. Remember who Jesus Christ is. Remember the breastplate of righteousness. Remember who you are in a right relationship with God. You're a child of the heavenly father. And remember your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. You are at peace with God. You're forgiven. So the first three, he says, just remember who Christ is, who you are, and the fact you're at peace with God. And let that take care of your confusion and your doubts about who God claims and is. But when will you get shot like with fiery darts? Then Paul says, ah, oh, ah, that's when you gotta take up the shield, the helmet, the sword. When you are really under the pain of persecution and derision and attack and slander. So he says, that time you take the shield. That word shield's not the small shield. The word is thuron. It's the big pick and door that you get behind as the darts hit the, hit the leather and are extinguished. And so simply, this is the shield of faith. You make the choice. God, I don't know what's going on right now. This hurts. I don't like it. But I'm going to trust you one more time. You haven't let me down yet. I'll trust you one more time. And the helmet, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, this is the helmet of hope. 
God, okay, this feels hopeless. This feels like pretty despairing here. But God, I know you're in control of the details. I'll hope. I'll hope that you'll pull something good out of this mess. Then the sword of the Spirit, he says, is the words of God. The word there is the word, uh, actually speaks of the very words of God. Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you'll obey what I say. So when it's confusing, you're under attack, just obey what Jesus says. He says, I'll take care of it. By the way, faith, hope, love. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And that's how when the persecution comes, we take it on. This is the kingdom ethic. This is what defines us as followers of Christ. This is what drives us as followers of Christ. This is our thinking, our attitude behind our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Number one, I'm not a God, so I don't expect to be treated as one. Number two, who am I? I'm a sinner. I grieve over my potential sinfulness. That's why I'm never self-righteous, but I am grateful for my forgiveness. Number three, I'm here not to be served, but to serve. It's not about me. Number four, I am true to who I really am, a child of God, simply trying to delight my heavenly Father with my life. Number five, I am moved by compassion. I feel the pain of others that moves me to want to lift the pain of and the suffering of someone else. And then I have made up my mind, finally, pure heart, I made up my soul to show that the will of God is a thing of beauty. I'm not afraid to submit to the will of God, that the kingdom of God come on earth. His will be done today in my life. You watch my life. And I'm committed to peace because I want people to know that Jesus is not a phony. And I'll do the IPO as often as I have to. I will initiate and provide and offer peace to anyone that I have odds, that I'm in odds with. And I will not compromise. If I get persecuted for being self-righteous, intolerant, then I deserve it. And Daryl, stop whining. But if I'm persecuted for righteousness sake, because I won't compromise my kingdom ethic, then I'm really not the one being persecuted, am I? They're persecuting Jesus again. And could I have the privilege to be the one that would experience the very persecution of my Lord again? See, we're a child of the kingdom. It's thy kingdom come. God, our Father who art in heaven, you're our Father. But hallowed be thy name. You're God, I'm not. Thy will be done on this earth. Yeah, Jesus, when you come, Every knee shall bow, but today, today, thy will be done in my life. Let me tell you how you start this. Can you see, how am I going to remember all eight? Just remember the first one. Tomorrow, this afternoon, you start getting a little upset, a little irritated, a little angry. Let's think of the first beatitude. Just hold on to the first one. Why am I getting angry? I really don't like the way I'm being treated right now. 
I'm really not happy with the fact that things aren't going my way right now. Don't they know that I'm a God and I should be treated with holiness and my will should be done on earth as it is in, is in heaven? Right about in the middle of that, you start going, let it go. Let it go. God is God. You're not. Stop thinking you ought to be treated like one. God bless you. Walk worthy. We'll see you next time.